You're listening to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 54. This week we're talking to Charlie Sobeck, the mission manager for NASA's planet-hunting Kepler mission based here at NASA Ames. You may have heard about Kepler, but in case you haven't, this spacecraft is hunting for planets outside of the solar system, or exoplanets. So far, Kepler has found more than 2,500 bona fide exoplanets, and it's done so by observing planetary eclipses of distant stars. So when a planet eclipses or passes in front of a star, it blocks a tiny fraction of starlight. This is similar to how objects in our solar system, such as the planet Venus or even our moon, block some of the light when they eclipse the sun. This method of detecting planets called transit photometry uh, has not only revealed the presence of thousands of exoplanets, but from the minuscule change in brightness, scientists can also determine the planet's size, distance from its star, and its orbital period, or really how long it takes to make one trip around the star. Scientists call it orbital period, but we call it a year. In today's episode, Charlie shares with us the excitement of leading the mission, being an enabler for the insatiably curious scientists that he works with, and how he created his path to work at NASA nearly 40 years ago. Here is Charlie Sobeck. Charlie, how did you end up in Silicon Valley? How did you end up joining NASA? Tell us about yourself. So, so I grew up uh, in Davis, California, outside Sacramento. Okay, so you're um, kind of local. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely. I'm a California person. Nice. I, I, I was born in Bakersfield, and uh, people who, you know, for, <laughs> who know Bakersfield from uh, 60 years ago, when I would tell them the story, they would say, "Oh yeah, at the gas station or the donut shop." Nice. <laughs> so <laughs> somewhere on the five. <laughs> exactly. Uh, except there wasn't a five. It was the oh. 99. Oh, you know, really? They didn't have a five back then. <laughs> See, uh, I say the five. That's shows the LA influence but right. so so I grew up in Davis um, uh, I I followed Gemini you know I I was a NASA uh, nerd I followed Gemini Apollo yeah uh, growing up in uh, in grade school and junior high um, and uh, and and I wanted to work with NASA I got really excited uh, when Time magazine published a story about what it would take to go to Mars and that sounded mm-hmm. really cool to me and in fact I sat down and wrote some letters to NASA Ames and oh really uh, whoever it was that got those letters <laughs> sent me back a package of stuff which I you know I probably never read most of it <laughs> um, but I decided in high school I really wanted to work for NASA uh, in college uh, I was looking for in uh, a co-op job with NASA I, I started at Northwestern University and um, didn't have a, a lot of support uh, from Northwestern. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on a summer vacation, I came down to Ames and said, you know, I'd really like to work for NASA. Uh, what are the chances I could co-op with you? And they oh, said, wow. oh, this is great. We have a great co-op program and we'd love to have you come. Um, but you have to be from one of these 11 West Coast schools. Really? So they gave me a list. And so I looked at the list and said, okay, <laughs> if I transferred to Berkeley, um, could I come co-op? And they said, Sure. So I literally put in my papers, and uh, three months later, I moved to Berkeley. Uh, I had transferred, wow, transferred there. everything over. Uh, I got wow. I got here to Berkeley. I, I picked up the phone. I called Ames and said, "Here I am at Berkeley," <laughs> uh, and they said, "Oh, well, we're full." Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I uh, finished my degree at Berkeley. I uh, 
uh, took a couple of co-op stints uh, for Hughes Aircraft Company down in Los Angeles. And um, then by sheer coincidence, I was uh, uh, living in the dorm and one of the people down the hall said, hey, Charlie, you want to work for NASA, don't you? And I said, yeah. I said, I have a friend who's, who's a co-op student down there and she's leaving. Um, oh, wow. Do you want, uh, would you be interested in taking her place? That got me an interview. <laughs> I, I talked to some people. I got a, I, my final co-op stint was with uh, the Space Projects Division uh, in working on a Galileo probe. Um, and upon graduation, I uh, was given a job and I've worked 15 more years on Galileo. Oh, really? Right. So what were you studying back then? Was it more engineering or were you thinking science? What were you doing? I, 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 my degree <laughs> is in electrical engineering and okay. electronics uh, on, on detailed semiconductors and so forth. Okay. I, I had a hard time at taking assumptions and I would work from first, everything from first principles. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't want to go so far that way. And especially since I really did like the big picture. So I've never really used my electrical engineering degree. I've, <laughs> I've done uh, test engineering, systems engineering, management. I've uh, uh, learned a lot on the job. I, I you know, I, I can pick up a lot. I'm a pretty smart person, um, and uh, it's it's just been a ball. I've enjoyed it. Wow. So okay. So working on Galileo, working on that. Then tell a little bit about the story <clears throat> of how that pivoted to the work that you were doing on Kepler and managing that project and. Kind of walk us through how do, how does that go from one to the other? It doesn't. It really doesn't. There's <laughs> no connection not. at all. Uh, I, I mean, I, I I spent the first 15 years of my career on Galileo spacecraft, and I said, boy, how many people get to work on a flight mission like that? Um, wow. I, I looked around, and not many people had worked on multiple flight missions, and and there weren't a lot of flight missions at Ames back then. And so I said, boy, this may be a once in a lifetime uh, opportunity. Enjoy I thought it. it was the greatest thing that I've ever done. And uh, when it was over, I, I worked some on uh, some space station uh, payloads. I did proposals for a, a Mars airplane and a Venus uh, a lander. Um, I worked on an aerobraking system, and I worked on a SOFIA instrument, uh, infrared mm-hmm. spectroscopy. All of these things for a year or two here or there. And then I fell into Kepler, and I've spent the last 17 years on Kepler. It's going to close really? out my career. So. It's been fabulous. And but there's how, no connection between the two. It, it just like being in the right place at the right time. It kind of just yeah. And being able to just pick up and and just adapt. I'm sure. Well, and then this is cool because like Kepler is one of those really neat, interesting like mixes of like the engineering side. I mean, obviously like a management side, but then also the science side that's like taking all these results and how these two groups kind of work together. So it was, I mean, I'm guessing then you'd have been involved with Kepler since the early days. This is like with Bill Baruki and like before the thing actually even launched and all of this or? So certainly before it launched, um, I was not in on any of, I wasn't, I didn't participate on any of the failed proposals. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't me. You were the, you were the winning ingredient <laughs> once they pulled they, you in. They had won, they finally won the first proposal proposal without me. Uh, okay. There was about two dozen uh, uh, applicants for that uh, final discovery proposal and uh, uh, that opportunity. Kepler was uh, selected along with two other missions for a three um, mission runoff, if you will. Okay. Uh, headquarters saying, we're going to pick one of you, but one of these three. In the end, they picked two and Kepler was one of them. So I was I, I joined after they had done that, uh, when you, uh, narrowing down to uh, three missions okay. um, and help generate our what we call our concept study report that led to the, the authorization to go ahead and launch. Yeah. And then that's kind of like the normal flow for these things. It's not like 
somebody dreams up their NASA their their dream NASA mission and then it like just gets funded and you go through. There's a lot of like ebbs and flows and you propose and it fails, but then this one gets picked up and then right. there's all kinds of weirdness. I, 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 had, that can happen. I had anticipated that like I say, I, I didn't think I would get another flight mission. That's I right. anticipated I was gonna spend the rest of my year uh, career writing proposals that wouldn't be accepted. Because there are <laughs> a lot of good ideas out there. Very much so. Uh, lots of people have proposals of really interesting things to do. What are the odds that yours is going to be picked? And, mm-hmm. You know, the odds are pretty small, really. Wow. And so on the podcast, we've had several different Kepler people, people working on, you know, the citizen science, um, you know, like Natalie Battaglia talking about, you know, as a project scientist and different things. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, we've had a mix of people on there. Talk about, like, what what are you working on day to day and how does that work with the team? Kind of tell us tell us your story. <laughs> so, so number one, I just love working with a scientist. It's, yeah. it, it is so cool. That is the biggest thing about my job is I get to work in the same hallway as these really wonderful people, these great scientists. Not only are they good scientists and what they do and, and world class, but I what I found is scientists in general are actually really cool people. Mm-hmm. They're not the nerds and the geeks that you that you keep hearing stories about. Every one of them is a really well-rounded person, and they have stories of their lives. They, you know, they all talk about, you know, what that when they took apart their car and how they did this, and uh, they had have varied interests. And you know, the one thing that holds them all together is curiosity. Absolutely, every scientist I know is infinitely curious and everything about everything, about politics, about environment, about you know the science that they're actually doing but about everything else about mm-hmm. books and movies like they're all really interested they just don't have an off switch uh-huh. um so so what do i do in all of this to be honest with you what i am is i'm an enabler mm-hmm. um i see from the very beginning of my career i saw my job as enabling these scientists to do what they do best that's what this is all about the missions are all about science yeah and how do you get them to do how do you how do you allow them to do the science they need to do somebody has to build the the hardware somebody has to manage the testing and and manage the budgets and the schedules and all that stuff because it all has to get done mm-hmm. but all of that is meaningless without the science itself so mm-hmm. so my job is an enabler uh, I personally am something of a troubleshooter, a firefighter. I, I really do my best you work. You do what needs to be done I, I do, to I, get I'm it to I'm happen. I'm at my best when things are going crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, when things are going smoothly, I tend to get bored and, and, uh, <laughs> and things fall apart a little bit more. Uh, th- these days, my, uh, uh, my deputy teases me because she says, Nothing lights up Charlie's face more than somebody <laughs> telling him there's a problem on the spacecraft. <laughs> now I can go into action. <laughs> so speaking of which, because it's like, you know, uh, one of my favorite stories, and I've heard it a bunch of times when we had different people like on the podcast, you know, you know, talking about this is like the whole Kepler mission of, you know, like it gets proposed and then it failed, proposed, failed, it finally gets there. It's funded. It's built. It's launched into space. Everything's going great. And then a reactor wheel. So I want to know from your side of as the troubleshooting, like let's just make things happen. What goes through your mind when it's like your your multi million dollar space telescope just doesn't start functioning the way it was, and then you have to turn to the engineers to find a better solution. So talk about what's going through your mind at that point. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I'll start by uh, by going to the punchline, and when that second reaction wheel failed. 
and we said, gee, we can't point at this Kepler field of view anymore. The mission's over. Yeah. At that point, I was pretty sure the mission was over, and there was not anything we could do about it. We're NASA. We don't give up. By God, we're going to try to recover that yeah. wheel. We're going to, uh, and and we worked for a few months on doing that, but I didn't have any real hope that that was going to yeah. happen. Um, now, where 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 I started doing my thing was a year before when the first reaction wheel failed. Okay. Now we had we still had a mission. We still You're had good. three. You have redundancy we, built that's in. That's right. We can continue doing it, but you know, damn it, we better learn something from that <laughs> failed wheel. And so we just tore into the uh, data. We looked for what caused it, what signals there were that would suggest the wheel was having problems. Um, in the end, you know, we, we didn't come up with a solution. There, there's no way we're going to protect the remaining three wheels. They were either built well uh, or they had a latent failure in them that sooner or later was going to bite us. But we found very little that we could do that was going to prevent another wheel from failing eventually. Um, but we had we, we, when we did find, most interestingly for me, was we found the signature. We, mm-hmm. we knew now what to look for, and we were going to have advance notice. We, in looking back at the old data, we could find signatures that said, you know, that first wheel was going to fail, and it oh, showed us wow. evidence six months before that, that it was it having was, a bad time. That it was going to that it was stressed, and something bad was going to happen. Oh wow! And lo and behold, five months before the second wheel failed, we saw the same kind of signal. So we knew that we had a, a, a limited amount of time left. Um, so we, we, we had procedures in place to catch the spacecraft. It didn't go spinning out of control when that second wheel failed. But when it did fail, at that time, I didn't have very much confidence that there was anything we could do about it. Having said that, it was amazing that we were able to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And a couple of things sort of happened uh, that caused this to, this to occur. One was an engineer at Ball Aerospace who built the spacecraft and who's their, their chief attitude control guy said, I'd like to talk to you about an idea I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and he showed us this idea of balancing the spacecraft against the sunline using two reaction wheels. His idea wasn't quite right. You know, he, he, uh, he had us pointed mm-hmm. still at the Kepler field of view. And, and at that point he said, you know, if we balance it just right, I can give you five, maybe ten minutes of data, you oh, know, wow. before I have to reorient the spacecraft and and uh, fire some thrusters and and he showed us simulations and we looked at it, but it was enough to get people thinking, and we were we started polling the science community and said, what if you could point the spacecraft, but you'd have to reorient it periodically? How often would be acceptable? Is ten okay. minutes long enough? Where would you choose to point? What kind of science would you like to do? We got 42 different white paper responses from the science community saying, here is all (laughs) the stuff you could do. And it was a huge amount of different kinds of science. It wasn't the Kepler mission anymore. This was the K2 mission. And as we got the science uh, inputs, the engineers started looking at it and said, well, you know, we could do that science if we pointed somewhere else. If we point somewhere else, you know, we could give you not 10 minutes, but two hours of uh, uninterrupted time. In fact, we could give you six hours. No, make that 12 hours. Oh, wow. And so we, we sort of circled and spiraled our way in to finding the right pointing attitude, the right solution to K2. And once we first started turning that page and we first started seeing a, a light at the end of the tunnel, it took about two to three months before we said, 
you know, this is going to work. Then you had to spend several months (laughs) doing the engineering, making sure you understood where the axis of symmetry was and how to command the spacecraft to do these odd things. How do you deal with an antenna which isn't pointed to the Earth anymore? Um, So then there's a lot of engineering issues to happen. But six months after this first light at the end of the tunnel, we were doing an engineering test. And that engineering test uh, was you know, 10 times better than we expected it really would be. Really? Uh, we thought we were going to be, you know, if we could do a factor of 10 in, uh, in precision to what Kepler had done, we said this would be a good mission. We didn't end up a factor of 10. We ended up 20% worse. This, this was an order of magnitude. Wow. Better than we had anticipated a good mission would be. Oh, wow. That's crazy. And so uh, shifting gears slightly, because this is still along the lines of, of, of Kepler, um, I, I think of a timely thing right now of the eclipse. Yeah, The yeah. eclipse is happening in August. The thing that I get a kick out of of some of the work here at Ames, I, I've seen Sophia, uh, that you had mentioned of the telescope right. on a plane, right. you know, looking at Pluto in by when Pluto passes in front of a star in occultation. Mm-hmm. Think of Kepler and the, the transit method mm-hmm. of when you get the, you know, a planet passes in front of a star, we get the light dip. But then also this eclipse. It's all variations of the same thing of how can you get science from you have a bright, shiny object <laughs> and a landmass like passes in front of it. And it's just so funny because like whether it's occultations, it's transits or the eclipse, you can get science out of this. And so it's almost variations on a theme. Yeah, sure. They're, they're all the same things. You're, you're, you're blocking yeah. light um, and, and you can see it, you know, if, if you you know, look out of your street at, your, at a, the, the light across the street. Mm-hmm. And, and when traffic goes by, you can see it dip. You know, it, there's, a, there's something interrupted the light and you know what it was. Um, the, uh, the eclipse, the solar eclipse that we're going to be seeing here, um, that's a, a, a special event for us. Um, but there are eclipses and occultations uh, all over the place. Interestingly enough, you know, the, Kepler uses the transit method. The planet mm-hmm. goes in front of the disk of the star and it blocks a little bit of the light. Well, we use the transit method uh, for uh, things in our solar system. Venus transits the sun periodically. In fact, every 100 years or so, every 106 years or something, it will do two uh, transits. It'll do one, and then five years later it'll do another one, and then it's 106 years before it does it it again and it repeats it in pairs. While we were building the Kepler instruments, both of the two uh, Venus transits occurred. And so we were able to reach out to the public and say, that's what we're going to be looking at, that Hell exact yeah. feature. And could literally put on your uh, solar observing glasses, look at the sun, and see this little tiny spot. You could see it, but mm-hmm. it was small. And that's what we were trying to measure with uh, with Kepler. Wow. So for you, Charlie, what's what are the next steps from, you know, I mean, Kepler is – kind of like in its winding down part i mean we have we had we just had a really big catalog um get released and i know there's still more updates going to that k2 still is still moving along but talk to a little bit about your timeline what you're working on what you plan on doing you know in the next couple years yeah so let me let me just sort of start with the mission what's what's the mission doing and i i've been thinking about what a good analogy would be and you know we we've just published our latest catalog uh, and it's four years after the last Kepler data has come to the ground. We've put out, I think it's our seventh or eighth catalog, and, and people keep saying, well, when are you going to get it right kind of thing? When's the last one? Well, this is the last one we're going to do because we're disbanding the uh, the Kepler team. Uh, but it's like p- 
publishing a map of the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, when are you going to get it right? Well, <laughs> it's just a matter of thing, detail. Yeah, it's a matter of detail. And it's a matter of <clears throat> what are you looking for? Uh, if what you want is a road map, you know, we'll get it right when you quit building roads. <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> so every once in a while, it's worth updating. And and it, it depends whether what you want to do, you know, is uh, if you're going to go hiking, you want to know the topology, okay, whether there's mountain ranges and things like that. If you're going to be driving, you want to know where the roads are. If you're a pilot, you want to know where the airspace that you have to keep out of mm-hmm. is. There are a variety of things you use maps for. Farmers would want a different thing. Right. What, what, yeah. is, the, what is the rainfall for your yeah. crops and what's the temperature at various places? So maps do various things, and our Kepler catalog does various things as well. So we are done publishing our catalog, but the community is going to take over the Kepler data, and they're going to publish additional addendums and other catalogs and overlays that show mm-hmm. the same kind of thing. That say, if what you're interested in is M dwarfs, here's the, uh, the overlay you put on the Kepler uh, results to see where the M dwarfs are and what the significance is. So there, Kepler itself is going to have a legacy, which is going to go on for a long time. Uh, for my part, I've got almost 40 years of government service. I'm thinking Kepler's probably going to be my uh, final project. I'll stay with the mission. <clears throat> my intent is to stay with the mission um, through the very end. I, I, I'd like to continue to participate till it runs out of fuel, and we have to pack up all the data, and we store all the documentation and write the final reports. Um, I uh, I think that would be a, a great way to, for me to sort of end my career at, at NASA Ames. So that's my my global plan. <laughs> Any work on some of the other <coughs> follow-up <coughs> telescopes, like thinking of TESS, WFIRST, and, and participate or share stories? I, I'm not a direct participant <laughs> yeah. in, in those uh, various other missions. I'm aware of them. Uh, when... Uh, when people ask, uh, you know, our Kepler experiences, there's things that we've done, we've learned in yeah, Kepler sure. that is Lessons applicable learned. to these things. Uh, I, I share that with them. I give them my uh, my insights as I have them. Uh, but other people will fly those missions, and, uh, and and they'll figure other solutions to some of the problems. You've been working on this for a while. The team has been doing in- insane, incredible work, the scientists and the engineers. Talk a little bit about, you know, the people side, because at the end of the day, you're working with human beings. You're working with, you know, friends and colleagues and people you go to barbecue, you yeah. know, cookouts. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. No, absolutely. And in the end, it is the people that does all that does all the work. Uh, it's the people who fly the spacecraft, who come up with the science concepts, who implement it. Who who do all do everything? It's all people who you know. You can say we have computers that do all these searches, but it's yeah. the people who figure out how to program the computer, what algorithms to use. A lot of what I do, I, I, I mentioned at the beginning that I consider myself an enabler. Yeah. And one of the things you have to do to enable this is get people to do the best they can, put them in a position where they can do what they what they do well, uh, give them the support they need, provide them with the care and feeding. And, and that's not an, uh, an insignificant job. I, no, it's huge. Er, early yeah. on in my career, um, you know, I was still really technically oriented, still, you know, just out of school. And one of my managers said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, that's a lot of fun. But I think you'll find as, as, you improve, as you go through your career that managing people will be much more interesting. And I didn't believe him. Mm-hmm. And I didn't believe him for several years. Um, 40 years down the road here now, I say, you know, he's right. Yeah. It's a lot of fun working with people and, and seeing them perform well. 
there's a lot of uh, of uh, satisfaction in in watching people do a good job. Yeah, it's almost like you, you get really good at your at your craft at the skill, whether it's technical, whether it's, it's writing or them. There's like puzzles that you solve day to day. Then there's human puzzles. It's like finding the right person for the right job, or maybe somebody who's really talented in one thing, but maybe if you move them somewhere yeah. else, it's I mean, understanding how people think and work to make it more efficient and right. work better. I mean, I, I'm a I'm a big puzzle person. I love, love puzzles. It, yeah. I, I love crossword puzzles. I love jigsaw puzzles. I love number puzzles, logic puzzles, topology puzzles. I just mm-hmm. I love these things, and, and I love I get a great kick out of solving them, managing people. Is a it's a wonderful puzzle, and you never get the solution. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so you never get that high of I've got it right, but it also is never done. You, you know, you, you're mm-hmm. able to come in the next morning and say I've I've got another piece to find, yeah. uh, another another knot to untie. Excellent. So um, so for folks who are listening, uh, we are on Twitter at NASA Ames. We're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. If you have any questions for Charlie, any questions about Kepler, anything NASA related and career related, send us those questions. We'll hook it up over to Charlie for responses and stuff. But thanks for coming over. This has been fantastic. Oh, you're welcome. It's great.